You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Thanks. Hi. Thank you. Um, who was here last week when we celebrated Redeemer being five years old? We had an amazing party here. It was fantastic. I was one of the few, not I shouldn't say few, one of about 10 or 12 people who met before Redeemer was, was launched in Pete's living room. Half of us were Cornfords. I was part of the other half. And, uh, and now we're you know, meeting in this amazing hall, and it's a, really pri- a real privilege. And I do thank you, Pete, for giving me this privilege um, of uh, speaking to everyone and bringing the message today. So um, we've been looking at the book of Mark, which Pete has brought to us so far, as he said. And Mark is the shortest uh, of the Gospels. It's also the first that was written. And Pete's talked to us a little bit about the sense of urgency and excitement that Mark um, gives this gospel in. The word he uses immediately a lot and straight away uh, to really give us that sense of urgency and excitement about the gospel. We've heard about his story, my story, our story, and this morning we'll be looking at the world's story as we look at Mark chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible with you or a phone, you can get your Bible ready. So chapter 7 moves the action out of Galilee as Jesus leaves Galilee to spend time in the pagan lands to the north and the east of Galilee. And he's been a pretty popular guy uh, so far in this part of Mark's gospel, with a couple of exceptions being a clash in a synagogue with the Pharisees in chapter 3 and another clash with the Nazarenes in chapter 6. And Mark closes off Jesus' time in Galilee by using another clash to teach us and his disciples a really important lesson. That's event number one out of three that we're going to be talking about this morning uh, as we look in chapter seven. He then travels to Tyre, which is a port city, where he has an interesting interaction with a Greek woman and heals her daughter from demon possession. And he then goes on in event number three, to heal a deaf and mute foreigner in Decapolis. So we're going to be looking at those three events this morning, and I'm going to be reading some of the Bible, some of chapter seven, but I do encourage you to go home and at some point today, read through the whole of chapter seven from Mark yourself. Now, I was prayed for before the, um, the service, which is great. It's really encouraging. So I'm going to get us to pray for each other before we get stuck into Mark. So I don't know if our arms are long enough to reach the person in front of you, but perhaps you can reach the person next to you. Uh, let's, if we all go to our right, and some people will have to stretch across the aisles, get up, get busy, just touch the person on your right. If you see somebody who's not got a hand on their shoulder, get up and move and make sure that person is being prayed for. So just put your hand on someone else's shoulder. We're all family here. We're all family. I'm going to pray, but feel free to pray your own prayer for that person that you are touching. Lord Jesus, I pray for this person whose shoulder I have in my hand. God, you have this whole person in your hands. You want for the best for this person. I pray your Holy Spirit 
will cause this person's heart and mind to be open to what you want to stir in them this morning. That they will be free from distraction and that you, they will be able to fix their eyes on you and what you would personally be saying to them through this morning's message. Amen. Great. It's great to have a bit of intimacy first thing on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Okay, we're going to start with Jesus' bombshell on the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 7. So we're going to read, and the words should be coming up on the screen. So, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, I love it the way Mark is patiently explaining these Jewish customs and traditions to his Roman uh, readers. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Now, Jesus obeyed the Torah perfectly, but he largely ignored the additional laws about washing hands and plates and pots and pans. And the Pharisees had meant well when they set out to systematize and amplify the law of Moses. They had hoped that if they tightened its regulations, they would strengthen the distinctions between the Jews and the pagans. And this is one of the reasons why they were so offended when Jesus shrugged off this additional rule that they taught in their synagogues. And the Pharisees, they were so consumed with their legal textbooks, they weren't there to see Jesus multiply loaves in order to give bread in the desert to a new generation of Israelites. As a result, they were unaware that Jesus was the true fulfillment of the law of Moses. Now, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29 as a reminder that God is not interested in man-made rules. He wants our hearts. He wants our heartfelt submission And he goes on to point out that their man-made rules actually contradict the law of Moses and that they are the real lawbreakers and not him. He turns to the crowd of Galileans and he appeals to them to distance themselves from the shortcomings of the first century Jews. The error of the Pharisees has been to assume that people can cleanse their sinful hearts by observing rules on the outside. And this is not the gospel. This is not the New Testament, as he explains to his disciples later. He explains that nothing outside a person 
can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. The disciples are a bit confused. You know, they're still learning a lot. And they ask him about this parable, what he means. And he says from chapter 18, uh, sorry, verse 18, are you so dull, he asks. He's pretty blunt with them. Um, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The true marker of whether someone is part of the people of God has never been whether they partake in ritual washing or food laws. It has only ever been that their heart is being changed by the Holy Spirit to produce character like that of Jesus. Now we're going to have just a little pause just to really let that sink in and really have a think about what that means to you. We prayed at the beginning that we would hear God's voice personally. So just take a moment. You you might want to close your eyes. You might want to look up. You might want to kneel even. Just, we're going to have a pause and a moment to really reflect on what this means. Listen to what God, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now. Are you paying lip service? to coming to church, or to reading your Bible? Are you worshipping in vain? Are you holding on to human traditions? Where is your heart? I would encourage you to confess any sin in your heart that the Holy Spirit has perhaps reminded you of just now. Ask for Jesus' forgiveness and tell him, that you want to follow him more closely. Just like we sang in the words of the the song, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he will remove your transgressions from you. Take time to tell Jesus that you are committing or recommitting yourself to him. Tell him that with all your heart, you are determined to step into his story. Okay, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to continue talking to us as we look now at the world story. And we're going to move into the second event in Mark chapter 7. So Mark um, here strongly attacks the sin of racism and makes clear to his readers that the gospel isn't just the Messiah's story. It is the whole world's story. 
So Jesus has left Galilee, and he started a tour of the mixed-race regions of Palestine, even though Jesus is trying to be discreet about his movements, he is far too famous a miracle worker, even in this largely pagan city, to prevent word getting out. Let's read from verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Now, when I first read this, I don't know about you, but I thought Jesus was being a bit rude. I mean, he's kind of implying that she's a dog. In Matthew's gospel, that we're actually told he refuses her twice, and she persists in asking for a healing miracle. And we tend to be a bit surprised by his offhand manner here, but in the first century, it was shocking for a Jewish rabbi to be willing to talk to a Gentile woman. So this brusque and aloof manner was typical of Jewish rabbis whenever they couldn't avoid talking to a Gentile woman. And probably Peter and his disciples didn't think much of it. As a result of their own prejudices, They probably nodded approvingly, thinking nothing of the way that Jesus repelled this pagan woman. I mean, dogs was one of the more polite ways that Jews referred to pagans behind their backs. So it's about time that a rabbi dared to say it to one of their faces. But his apparent rudeness is actually a ruse. It is only a way to draw out what is in her heart and the hearts of his disciples. The foreign woman's heart is as beautiful as the disciples' dull thoughts are ugly. Lord, she replies, and she uses the Greek word curious, which can just mean sir, but which is also the word used to translate the name Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And by saying this, she's admitting that she's completely unworthy to have a share in God's kingdom. But she's telling Jesus that she is desperate for a taste of the bread that he has come to offer Israel. Don't miss the way that this event is sandwiched, excuse the pun, between the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 Jews that is, in chapter 6, and the feeding of 4,000 foreigners in chapter 8. This marks an amazing turning point. 
The Pharisees ignored the way Jesus provided miraculous bread for people in the desert. And instead, they just complained that his followers ate their bread with unclean hands. They despised the bread of life. But this woman is willing to grovel on the floor to get her share. The key to understanding this miracle is the emphasis as well placed on first, which is intended to convey priority, not value. In other words, it is the privilege of the children, the Jews, to eat the bread first. After they eat, then it is appropriate for others to enjoy leftovers. Paul likewise says that the gospel will go first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. The foreign woman is from a particularly affluent class of Greek-speaking Gentiles. So the contrast between the children and dogs was one of priority and privilege, not worth. In this context, the dogs are household pets rather than the scavenging wild dogs that were considered unclean to Jews. Jesus is declaring that the Jewish claim to privilege has passed And now let's consider others who may wish to come to dine. Again, he is teaching his disciples. This story has strong ties to Acts 10, by which time Peter is confident in the inclusive nature of the gospel. And he acknowledges then in Acts that Gentiles are benefactors of the gospel alongside the Jews. Well, whatever else Peter and his friends might have expected Jesus to say at this time, though, to this foreigner, they did not expect for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. They came from a culture which taught that foreigners had no right to receive God's help. It was the children's bread. Because these pagans had deliberately given themselves over to the worship of demon idols. Jesus demolishes this wrong thinking by delivering this foreigner's daughter from a demon as easily as if she had been a Jewish worshipper. The message of the kingdom is not just God's story for Israel. It is God's story for the whole world. This event in Tyre was therefore the beginning of this new revelation for Peter and his friends. And it was also of vital importance to the Roman readers of Mark's gospel. And it's also of vital importance to you and me. We must not miss the message for us behind this story. Yes, there's a message of uh, persistence and faith from this woman. But it also tells us very clearly... That God has created all races and hates all forms of racism. It tells us that he invites people from every single ethnic group on earth to step into his story. It tells us that we must not write off anybody out of his story because of their location or their background or their culture. That means the Buddhist you sit next to on the bus... That means the Muslim in your office. That means the Hindu down your street. That means the the person who lives in the so-called Muslim world or who lives in a notoriously hard-to-reach nation. 
No, Jesus uses his visit to Tyre to proclaim that his kingdom on earth is a kingdom without any borders. He starts a new chapter in his story demonstrating this truth from Psalm. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Why don't you nudge the person next to you and say, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. (laughs) Okay, and now on to event three. Jesus continues his tour of the mixed-race borderlands of Palestine. He is back in Decapolis. Now, this is the region, and I think Pete spoke about this a few weeks ago, where he delivered a man from a legion of demons back in chapter 5. Now, that man was, um, has been obedient to Jesus' parting instructions, and he's told everyone about Jesus and what he did for him. Amazing when you think that the Decapolis crowds had previously asked Jesus to leave. But because of this one man's evangelism, they are now keen to have him back. A large crowd starts to gather, and amongst the first arrivals is a man who is deaf and can hardly talk. Let's read from verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. He then spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha. Ephatha, I think, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus ignores the many reasons why he should not help this man. I mean, the man is a Gentile. Jesus was asked to leave this area by his neighbors several months ago. And if word gets out that he's healing Gentiles, it could make it a harder job for him when he finally goes south to Jerusalem. There are lots of good reasons for Jesus to say no, but he ignores every one of them. He decides to radically demonstrate that this deaf and mute foreigner is a friend and brother. He takes him to one side. Um, so I'm, and I think so that his disciples have a front row seat. We know that Jesus can heal from afar. Jesus often healed by, by touching and placing his hands on someone. But in the event before, he healed the daughter of her demon possession, and he hadn't even seen her. So... Why? What is Jesus doing? Why is he sticking his fingers in ears and mixing saliva with someone's? He doesn't have to do that. I saw some of you flinch when I asked you to put a hand on somebody else's shoulder, but imagine what putting your fingers into a stranger's ears. I don't know. What's he doing? 
Well, he is radically demonstrating that this deaf and mute foreigner is a friend and brother. Has he a problem inside his ears? Then I shall put my clean Jewish finger into his dirty pagan ears to demonstrate my willingness to bear the problem of his deafness. Has he got a problem with his tongue? Then I will spit on this foreigner. I will mix my pure Jewish saliva with his unclean pagan spit to demonstrate my willingness to bear the problem of his muteness. Does his heart break daily over the misery of his affliction? Then I will groan deeply in my own heart and look up to heaven as a sign to my father that I am willing to bear his suffering. And the literal translation of that word groan that was used means to be in distress. Jesus was willing to feel this man's pain. I will cry out, be opened, as a demonstration of my willingness to use my God-given authority to save this lost and sinful pagan. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us that he is as much the Messiah of the Decapolis as he is the Messiah of Galilee. The word Mark uses in verse 32 to describe the man as mute is an unusual word. I'll try it. My Greek isn't that great. The word mogilolos means having difficulty speaking. And it's, it's so rare, rarely used, that's the only time that that word is used in the New Testament. And it's only used one other time in the whole of the Greek Old Testament, and it's used in Isaiah 35, in one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies about the future ministry of the Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This ancient prophecy about the Messiah is instantly fulfilled while Peter and the other disciples look on in wonder. Mark echoes its wording when he tells us that the man's ears were opened, his tongue loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Mark is telling us literally that the chain of his tongue was loosened. In other words, he was set free from his affliction. There is no doubt that God's Messiah is the saviour of the world. No wonder that in Matthew's gospel, he describes this same event by telling us that the people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and they praised the God of Israel. They now knew that the pagan world had been included in God's invitation to step into the Messiah's story, the world's story.